0: Absolutely, have no idea about anything regarding the Bible, the Old Testament, the prophets, anything like that. So um, up until now, Paul has, you know, he started in the synagogue and we've seen, that. I'm not saying that he's never preached to anybody who hadn't had any idea about the Bible or uh, Old Testament backgrounds, but this is the first sermon in Acts that's recorded for us that shows him speaking to a crowd of people that had no idea about anything before he started talking. And you're going to see him do it a little differently. Remember, we've seen his sermons before where he starts talking about the Old Testament prophecies and God has promised his Messiah and Jesus is the Messiah. He's not going to start with any of that with these guys because they don't know anything. They're philosophers and Greek thinkers and all that. He's going to start with God as creator. He's going to start in a different place with them you <laughs> So, what I want you to see is that we 're going to be able to learn a lot about who God is because that 's what he 's going to focus on he 's going to focus on who God is, and then he 's going to bring in the fact that god 's going to judge the world by Jesus Christ whom he, whom he raised from the dead and so this is really the first time it 's not the first time that anybody that 's absolutely ignorant has heard the gospel in Acts, but it 's the first sermon that we have that 's right to a group of people that don 't know anything about about anything. And so it's really, it's neat for me. It's instructive for me anyway. Um, so Paul goes to Acts. Where did Paul just come from? Berea. 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 And what, what was notable about the Bereans? Remember last last week? They searched the scriptures. They were more noble than, than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures. And what happened in Berea? Jews from Thessalonica came there. and You are the man, Dean. The Jews from Thessalonica came to Berea to stir them up and try to get them, you know, try to get Paul out. So Paul left for Athens. Now, at this time, the time that Paul comes to Athens, which, as far as we know, this is probably the first time he's ever been to Athens, Paul comes to Athens, uh, Athens was not, it had lost some of its grandeur. You know, it wasn't the great, huge, wonderful center of, uh, you know, democracy and all that kind of stuff like it was in, in centuries past. But it was still the symbol of, you know, you think Athens, what do you think of? You think of the buildings and the, the structures and the architecture. And the philosophy and the education and the, the, all that kind of stuff. All that was still was still there. But what, what you're going to see is Paul is walking around in Athens and some people even think that they just sent Paul to Athens to get him away, you know, so he'd go on vacation or something, you know, because so, everywhere he went there was a riot. I don't know about that, but Paul's walking around the city and the first thing he does, the first thing he does is he doesn't pay attention to the buildings. He's not in awe over the the wonders of, you know, the ancient architecture, all that stuff. He he is he's burdened for the souls of the people that are there because you see, there's nothing but idols in Athens. In verse sixteen it says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas. But no, that's not right. Now while Paul, sorry, my Bible's a little print. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, who's he waiting for? Silas and Timothy. Silas and Timothy. Dean, you are like batting a thousand. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, he, his spirit was stirred in him. Uh, it literally says he was disturbed. He was, um, what's another word for it? He was he was bothered. His spirit was stirred in him. Why? <coughs> When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now there are some, there's an ancient writer that says that in Rhodes and in Athens, there was upwards of 70,000 idols. Like gods and idols and, you know, the god for this and the god goddess for that. And the 70,000, that's a whole bunch. That's a whole bunch. So you can imagine Paul walking through the city. Paul's a Jewish man, he's follower of Christ. He understands who God is. He understands what God has done. But everywhere he looks, there's an idol. There's an idol to Zeus and to Heracles and to Dionysus and to Hera and to you know whoever else, Apollo, Artemis. There's there's gods everywhere. Idols. I say little g-g gods. There's idols everywhere. And so Paul's looking around. He's saying, my goodness, look at all these. Look at all these idols everywhere. And so what he did was, he says, he says, therefore... Verse 17, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons. He went to the synagogue, which is what he normally does. You know, he goes right to the synagogue. He disputes with those because they have an Old Testament background. But it says he also disputed in the market, in the agora was the word, daily with them that met with him. Now, the marketplace in, in the, it was really called, agora is not just a Greek word. That's what it was called. It was called, it's still called the agora. It's um, it is a marketplace, but it 's not just a marketplace it 's um It's the center of commerce. It was the hangout. It was where people came to exchange ideas. It was the Starbucks of Athens, okay? Because that's where, you know, you would go and you would get to hear people talking. You would get to share ideas. You know, it's like, I guess maybe now if you're in a city, you go out to the park and you see the old dudes playing chess or people sitting around talking, drinking coffee. You know, it was the place where people came to enjoy social interactions with each other. It was the place where ideas were exchanged, new philosophies were talked about. It was, uh, it was kind of a hangout. It was also the market. It was where commerce and all that kind of stuff was done. And so Paul, he doesn't just go to the synagogue. He's burdened for these people in such a way that he goes to where they're at. They're, they're in this marketplace. They're in this agora. And he goes, and you can just imagine, what do you think he was doing? How do you think he approached it, walking into this open marketplace? What do you think he did? I'm just asking. We don't know what he did, but what do you think he did? Probably asked him what the idol was and then God Yeah, he probably just grabbed somebody, started talking to him. You think he might have stood up in the middle of everybody and just started yelling. You ever seen somebody do that? (laughs) Just stand up and start yelling in the midst of some folks saying, you know, street preaching is what you call it. You know, he he probably I would I would assume that he did that. He would just stand up. Now, that's not really an unheard of thing back then. You know, people would with a new philosophy or a teacher. This this marketplace, this agora where Paul was teaching, where he was disputing with these people. This is the same place that Socrates taught 400 years earlier. And so this is this is the place where teachers would come and they would. Present their their stuff, you know their their um, you know theories, philosophies, whatever. So this was not just a; it wasn't just like going to the mall. You know, if you ever tried to stop somebody? I've I've taken kids different places and tried to uh, uh, get them to witness to strangers. And what we found is that it doesn't really work when everybody's like when they're shopping, they don't want to talk to you. You know what I mean? That's like you try to stop them, they don't want to talk. They they ready to get to Macy's or wherever. You know. But if you go out to where like if you're at a carnival or if you're at the fall fest or whatever, you know, they're kind of leisurely walking around, they'll talk to you. This was a place where people were not just running to get groceries and coming home. This is where they went to congregate during the day. And so Paul's up there and he's he's disputing with the, the Jews in the synagogue. He's also disputing. This is the word dispute here is the where we get the word dialogue. So he is, you know, it's not like he's just preaching a sermon. He's like interacting with them. You know, he's actually telling them what he thinks, and they might object to this, and he explained it a little further, and he's actually having interactions with these people. And what's going to happen is, uh, these uh, philosophers that were around, they're going to listen to his teaching, and they're going to say, hey, this is new, and it's novel, we need to take him to the experts, and they're going to take him to what's called the Areopagus, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So it says uh, they, He was, daily, he was in the marketplace daily with them, that met with him. He was day, day after day after day. Paul spent his time every day going to the synagogue and dialoguing with them. He spent his going to the market and dialoguing with them over and over and over again. Uh, it, it To me, have any of you ever been to Greece or anywhere like that, somewhere like that. I had never been either, but I mean, you can imagine walking up on. Uh, I looked at some 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 maps and some descriptions. I'd never been there, but it, some people say that you can see the Parthenon from where this was, and the Parthenon. You all you know, seen? The, you ever been to the Parthenon in Nashville? It's, it's saying yeah, not that, yeah. You can't see that one from Greece, but the the part you can see the Parthenon from there, and the Parthenon is just dedicated to all all these different gods, right? And so. Uh, he was right in the shadow of that, and rather than being in awe of all this culture and architecture, or whatever, he was burdened for their souls. He was looking around, and instead of being, you know, wondering over how ancient people had the, fore, the knowledge and forethought to build these wonderful buildings, he was looking at them going, I mean, this is just, a, this is, this is a idolatry. This is evil, wicked, you know? And so he was, he was more concerned with their souls than he was uh, taking, in the, taking in the sight. More <laughs> of more overwhelmed with their wickedness. Yeah. And they probably wouldn't have seen it as wicked. You know? I mean, think about it. If you took a trip to Greece... Uh, vacation or whatever would our minds be trained that way to say you know, uh, to be honest, I'd be looking around going, dang, can you imagine 500 years, 1,000 years ago somebody built these 1,000 years ago it'd probably be 2,000 or 3,000 years ago but, you know, you'd be on vacation you'd be looking at the architecture you'd be seeing the sites, hitting the tourist deals, rather than seeing them for what they are, they're Idolatrous. They're temples. They're temples to gods that don't exist. They're, they're shrines and all these. I had a, a friend of mine visited the Vatican. I don't know if you've ever been to the Vatican. The Vatican is where the Pope, you know, the funny hat guy lives. And... <laughs> The, he went to Vatican and he described never been there, but he described it to me, and it was i mean it 's just gold and huge marble and I mean just like a palace i mean you just couldn 't imagine and I was just listening, and then he said to me it was the most disgusting thing i 've ever seen in my life, and then went on to describe how it represented you know. Money and false church, and you know, just all these things. And this is kind of where Paul's mind was. He was looking at these things, going, Man, these guys are so lost. They're, they're worshiping, they're worshiping these marble statues. They're worshiping these things that don't even exist, that don't even matter. I mean can you imagine they're sacrificing to a a statue of Athena or or whatever. They're they're giving their worship and their adoration to things that don't think and don't breathe and don't speak and can't react and do all these things. And so he was burdened for them. Uh, The reality is that today we have the whole world does the same thing. I mean the same thing. We may not be bowing down to a statue of Athena or Zeus or Herodotus. Or anything like that. But, I mean, we're worshiping worshiping our, our free time or worshiping our possessions or worshiping our family or worshiping, our, worshiping things that uh, aren't worthy of our worship. There's nothing wrong with having possessions, nothing wrong with free time. It's a good thing for us to enjoy. It's not sinful, nothing wrong with family, nothing wrong with job, nothing wrong with anything. But when it becomes an idol, it becomes... It becomes wicked. And so Paul is is his his first thought is I have to I have to be a light for these people. You know, there's no this is probably he's probably the first Christian to ever step foot in the city that we know of. I mean. And so he goes to witnessing. Witnessing in the synagogue, witnessing in the marketplace. Now he runs into two different kinds of people that are just mentioned. He said, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics uh, encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Or what is this babbler saying? Others, some, he, he said that he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, do you want me to go into a thing and tell you who the Epicureans or Stoics are? Or do you want me to just skip it and say he ran into some philosophers? Short <laughs> the short version. All right. Epicureans believed that they didn't believe in the god myths like the statue of Zeus and all that, but they believed there were gods and the gods were in atoms. Not talking about the same thing that we call atoms, but all matter is made up of atoms, and so uh, the gods live between the atoms and they were absolutely unconcerned with mankind. It was kind of like deism, if you ever heard of a deist. They believe there is a god, but he could care less about what's going on down here. You know, he's busy with his own stuff and we're We're just all left on our own. The Epicureans were... They believed that God... The gods... They believed in lots of gods, but the gods were unconcerned with stuff that goes on here so ain't no sense in worshiping them ain't no sense in bow down no statues nothing like that it's all just that they could care less the good the greatest good for an epicurean is for you to live uh free of pain to live for pleasure to live the best you can try to be free of pain or disturbance live a peaceful life have fun i mean that's basically epicurean philosophy uh stoics on the other hand they believe that in a they believe in a god, but their god is kind of like the principle of reality that goes through everything. It's kind of like the force in Star Wars. He's just kind of in and through everything. You know, that's God. They called him the Logos, and so it, it was just it permeates everything. God is just everywhere. You know, God is is in all things, and He's everywhere. And uh, the best way to live for a Stoic was, was to be self sufficient and live virtuously. To live virtuously meant you live in accordance with the Logos, the, the nature of all things. Does that make sense? Yeah. You live kind of, you live in accordance with the... the like nature, they worship almost like well, they didn't worship nature, but they worshiped... God was in everything. Yeah, that's right. Like pantheism. You know what pantheism is? Like They believe that everything is God. Everything is God. The tree is God, and I'm God, and you're God, and the chair is God. And it sounds kind of dumb to us, you know? But there's still people that believe that. You know, Hindus believe that. That God is all, you know, permeating. They got lots of different gods and all those kind of things. Not the Hindus, the Buddhists. Anyway, anyway, it doesn't matter. One of them believes that God is just in everything and it, everything is God. The, the, the mother earth is God, right? It's just one big, it's like Avatar. You know, that's what that's what it is. Y'all seen Avatar? That movie, like the whole earth is God and mother tree and it, it, it goes through all the roots and we're all one and he, that's what stoics believed and for a stoic, the best way to live was to be free of emotion, was to be free of emotionalism and you just become self-sufficient where it doesn't matter what happens in certain circumstances life you 're not dependent on anything so you don 't have to worry about anything that 's where we get the idea that 's where we get the word where we say you know well he 's got a real stoic look on his face, you know they don 't have no emotion no whatever that 's where we get that from so he runs into these two philosophies, these two camps now in in this day and age, the philosophy wasn 't just what we think of when you think of philosophy you 're thinking of we sitting in, you know around a smoky coffee table talking about uh, you know, the meaning of life or whatever. Philosophy in this day was, it was an entire worldview. It was talked about what reality is, about who God is, about how we're to live, about what we're supposed to be doing, all those kinds of things. So Paul runs into these two groups and they say, look, this guy's introducing some foreign gods. He's introducing some new stuff. He's introducing some strange gods that we don't know nothing about. So what they decide to do was they take him to what's called the Areopagus, which is where the elite the expert thinkers hear new ideas and and talk about these things. It says <clears throat> verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Areopagus means the hill of Ares, which is Ares was the god of war, right? And in Latin, who's the Roman god of war? Anybody know? <laughs> No. But it's called the it's called what hill is this called? No. Huh? Mars, that's right, Mars Hill. Mars was the god of war in Rome, So in Latin they called it, instead of the hill of Ares, they call it the hill of Mars, which is where we get Mars Hill. So it says uh, he is at the Areopagus and he uh, took him, brought him to Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speak is. You need to tell us what this new thing is you're teaching. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore uh, what these things mean. Uh, for the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in Nothing else. This is what they did at the Areopagus. They sat around talking about new ideas. These were the experts. These were the uh, the philosophers. These were the elite guys sitting around in their togas. You know, I don't know if they wore togas, but you know, they were sitting around listening to new ideas and all that kind of stuff. But either to tell or to hear something new. That's what. When you had something new going on, you had a new god you wanted to add to the the pantheon of gods that were already in Athens. You came to these guys. Now Paul is on trial here But it's not a legal trial. They're not going to stone him. They're not going to kill him. What it is, is they're just listening to see if his ideas are any good. They're listening to see if his philosophy is worth teaching in Athens. They're listening to you know, just to kind of judge him. They're not, you know, they're not, this is not has nothing to do with, they have no legal authority to do anything to him or anything like that. At this time this used to be the Areopagus was the center of government, commerce, politics, all that, when Athens was a city-state, but now Rome was in charge. And so they really didn't have any authority other than just to say, this guy's teaching something good, or this guy's teaching something bad. So they basically brought Paul to them to see, to let them judge whether what he was saying was even worthy uh, of something to be taught. It's kind of a pattern of Paul, right? He goes, to, he goes to a new city, he goes to the synagogue. They take him away and they take him before the men of the city. Yeah, they sure do. That's exactly what happens. And most of the time it ends badly for Paul. But it always ends with a church being started. So if you look back, just a side note, if you look back to the places that he went... Uh, he went to Thessalonica he went to uh, Corinth he went to Berea and in every one of those cities he went to uh, Lystra and to uh, and to uh, all these other cities that we've seen him go to so far almost every single one he was either whipped beaten imprisoned or a riot broke out almost every single city but in every single city when he left there was a church established and so I mean we can take that to we can take that as an example of what it means to follow Christ. You know, to for me, to be honest with you, the first time I go into a new city and I start preaching and I get 39 lashes, I'm done. I'm going home. You know, I'm out. You know, I, I'm sorry. But Paul was stoned, left for dead, you know, and then got up the next day, walked 60 miles to the next city, and started preaching and started to write. He understood that he was called way back when Paul was uh, converted. It said to, it said, when when God God told Ananias to go. Remember Paul's blind. He was in three days in the house. He told Ananias to go find him. He said, because I'm going to show him how he will suffer for my name. And that's exactly what Paul did. He, city to city to city. Everywhere he went. Prison. Stone. Beaten. Put on trial. And it's going to continue all the way until he dies. He didn't die in the book of Acts but eventually he died in Rome. and uh, And it's going to continue. His whole life is going to be Persecution, beatings, uh, riots, trials. His his whole life is going to be that way. And the only thing that we see come of it is people are converted under his preaching and churches are planted under his preaching. And and that's all he lives for. And so he sees himself. I I can see at the end he says, you know, I've run a good race. I've kept the faith. The only success that he has is the fact that he saw people converted by his life and preaching and he saw churches planted by his life and his preaching. It was God working through his life and his preaching. But other than that, you know, he, he was he he had it rough, you know. He said we're beaten and cast down but not destroyed and you know, he he had it he had it really really bad. But he wouldn't have it any other way. That's a good point. Good point. Um, so he's going to preach this sermon and this sermon we may not get to it all because it 's already ten o'clock but <clears throat> He's going to address them. Let me say, he says they took him to the area. I already read all that. He uh, He's going to address them, and this sermon he's going to preach is different from the, all the sermons that he's preached before because these folks are completely ignorant of any, they don't know any Jewish teaching. They don't know anything about Old Testament. From their point of view, there was the creator God, Kronos, who had Zeus and Hera and all, all these other things. That's That was the gods. That's what, you know, their idea of God, Was a bunch of them, and each god had its own little area. It says, uh, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, the Areopagus, that's where we get Mars Hill, because it was the Hill of Mars, Hill of Ares, and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. That sounds like an insult, but it really wasn't. What he was saying was, it's not an insult or a compliment. He's just saying, You guys are very religious, you're very spiritual. And he's going to say, I know that because I look around, you got a million idols everywhere. He says, For as I pass by and beheld your devotions, that de- word devotion is objects of worship. He's not talking about their prayers or their whatever, he's talking about all the idols that he sees everywhere. He says, I see that you're very superstitious, you're very religious, you're very devout, would be a good way to put it. He said, Because when I walk by, I see all these objects of worship that you got, all these things that are everywhere, these statues, these these shrines, these temples, these—I mean, they're everywhere. If you had a market, if you had a market and a little store, you had a shrine or an idol or something in that store because that's who you prayed to to give you good business, to give you prosperity. So you couldn't go anywhere, anywhere without seeing an idol or a shrine or a temple or, or something like that to one of these gods, one of these uh, bunches of Greek gods. He says. As I, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. Him I declare unto you. There was an unknown God. They were so worried about not offending any of the gods that they had an idol for an unknown God. Now... Um, In those days, you had to make sure you prayed to the right God. Now, all all this is false. We know there's only one God, but in in Greek thought, you had to make sure you were offering sacrifice and prayers to the right God. For instance, if you were if you were going on a ship journey somewhere, what God would you have to make sacrifice to? The traveling god, Poseidon. Yeah, there you go. We watch Harry Potter. Not Harry Potter, but. What's it, Jackson. Percy Jackson? Yeah, <laughs> and so if you were, you know, if you wanted to fall in love with this chick down the road, you had to sacrifice to Athena, be good to her, you know. If you wanted, if you was a soldier going off to war, it was Aries or Mars, you know. You had to, you had to, you, and so whatever was going on, you had to make sure if you that you had a god that you had to do if you needed sunlight for your crops or if you need a great harvest, you you, you had a different god. Each god had its own little sphere of influence, and so what was going on here is that, you know, they had all these different gods for all these different things, and so they had one just for, just a, uh, I call it the in-case god. Just in case I miss one, we're going to have an unknown god. We're going to have an unknown god, and then if the god gets mad, the point of all this was they were scared that the gods would get mad, and... Mess them up, you know. They were scared to go out and be a farmer and not sacrifice to this particular God because if they did and that God was angry, then he would not let them get any production out of their farm or, you know, whatever. so... In order to keep them from getting mad, and in case, just in case I miss one, we're gonna have this one. Is we don't even know who he is. He's just a god that we don't know. In that way, if uh, if if a god shows up and he's mad, then uh, we can say, "Hey, you're the unknown god. You know, you're the one we, we sacrificed you. We just didn't know who you were." Well, Paul comes. He says, "This one that you don't know, I'm going to tell you who he is." Now we got to be real careful here. Paul was not telling them, "Hey, I'm going to add a new god to your." pantheon. I'm going to add a new God to all the gods that you worship. I'm going to let you know who this God is that, uh, that uh, you need to add to all the other gods. His sermon he's going to preach is about the one true God. There's no other God. He says this God created everything. He created all people. He's in charge of everything. He's going to say all that in his sermon. But what he's showing them is he's going to teach them about the God that they know they don't know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. He's going to teach, they know that they don't know this God. They got an idol for Him, they sacrifice to Him, they worship to Him. You know, of course, they're doing it in error because they don't know Him. But they know that they're ignorant of this God. And so Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you about the God that you know that you don't know. He's basically, it's kind of like a word play. He's saying, there really is only one God and you don't know Him, so I'm going to tell you about it and so he 's not adding a new God or anything like that. the The charge they brought against him was that he 's bringing strange gods and you know foreign gods and he 's saying no this, this god 's been here forever. this God and of course, in his mind he's, this God is everywhere, this is the only God, and you already know that you don 't know him so i 'm not introducing a new god i 'm introducing the only god and so he 's saying i 'm going to tell you about this God that you know that you don 't know." Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. That's a little... They know that they don't know the God. Paul is going to say, you, you're worshiping him ignorantly, and I'm going to tell you about it. And so this is what he does. He starts off with creation. He says, God, basically all these things are going to tell us something about God. I'm going to go through them quickly so we can try to get done with this chapter. But he says, <clears throat> he starts off saying that the true God is all-powerful. This one God is all powerful. He says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made by hands. Now, wait a minute. Poseidon is the god of the sea and whatever god is the god of the sky and whatever god is the god Hades is the god of the underworld and blah 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 blah. and here Paul's saying this god he's the god he's the one who made heaven and earth he's the one that made everything and he's lord over everything so right off the bat he's not he's, he's letting them know I'm not adding another little god to your mix he said there's one god he created all things and he's all powerful he's the creator of all he's lord of all he's the only true God, and He don't dwell in your little temples. He doesn't dwell in this temple, or this shrine, or this idol, or this thing. Now, that's interesting, because Israel had a temple way back when, when Solomon built it, didn't he? But even Solomon knew back then that God don't dwell in temples. When Solomon dedicated that temple, he said the heavens themselves aren't big enough to contain you. So even Solomon and the Israelites knew that God, God isn't housed in a temple. God is, is everywhere. He is uh, he's omnipresent. He is all-powerful. And so he's introducing them to the true God who created heaven, earth, created everything. And so the verse 25 says he's self-sufficient as well. He don't need you. Verse 25 says, Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Now, you ever thought about that for a second? Let's pause here for a minute. God doesn't need you. Now, that's, pretty, that's a no-brainer. We got that. God doesn't need me. But... Sometimes we live like God needs us. Sometimes we live like God is, I want to be real careful how I phrase this. God doesn't need us to serve him. He doesn't, I mean, he desires for us to serve him and we are commanded to serve him, but he doesn't need us to serve him. In this day and age, and this idea, if you know anything about the Hellenistic culture of the Roman world, they would sacrifice to the gods in order to appease them for something. You know, or whatever. They would bring a sacrifice, it would be like a fellowship meal with the God and let the God eat. They would have you know sex with the priests or the priestess and it would satiate the god and you know okay you got that uh they would do all these things as if the god needed them to to worship them to serve them to to be their underlings or whatever the true god doesn't need anything he didn't need to create because he was lonely he didn't need to create you so that he would have some company. He didn't need to create you so that he would have a servant so somebody would serve him. The idea is that he desired to create so that you would so that you would have fellowship with him. The reality is <clears throat> sacrificing to God the way, the gods the way they were doing really they were thinking they were doing something. But The true God doesn't need anything from us. Now, that presents a little problem. Didn't Israel sacrifice way back in Leviticus and Numbers? Why did they sacrifice? To atone for their sin. To atone for their sin. That's right. So, were they offering God? Were they giving God anything by their sacrifices? No. No. God was giving to them through their sacrifices. See what I mean? God was allowing their sin to be covered by the bulls and the goats and the ram until Jesus Christ came with the perfect sacrifice. You ever read Psalm 50 where it says, My God owns the cattle on a thousand hills or whatever? We use that verse, but really that whole passage talks about God saying, I don't need your bull. It's my bull anyway. You bringing your bull and your cattle to me like you're doing something for me, that's something I've done for you. I've allowed you to sacrifice in order to have your sins covered until my son comes and wipes them all away. He said, so, Paul is saying here, God doesn't need... God is not in need of your service. He's not in, in need of your worship. He's not in need of anything. He is self-sufficient. He was not lonely in eternity past, before He created. He, there, he was always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He existed in a love relationship. Father loved the Son. Son loved the Father. Spirit loved the Father and the Son. He existed eternally. He, did, he wasn't lonely. He didn't need you. He doesn't need you Now... But he desires he desires a relationship with you. that is a tough pill to swallow for some people it 's a tough pill to understand that everything we have is a gift i mean that 's what Paul says and it? it says in verse twenty five he says neither does he worship with men 's hands as though he needed anything he doesn 't need anything. He says, seeing that he giveth to all life." And breath and all things. So when you bring your worship, when you bring your service, when you bring, you're just doing what is, yeah, that's, that's just what you're supposed to be doing. You don't get extra points for doing any of that. God has given you life. We got that. That's no problem. But what he says is God is also giving you breath. That means every time, I don't know how many times you've inhaled and exhaled since you've been in this room. But every time you've inhaled and exhaled, God has allowed you to take that breath. God is maintaining the heartbeat that's going on in your chest. You understand? He is, if if he were to withdraw his hand, uh, I think it's uh, Colossians chapter 1. It says he upholds all things by his mighty power. He is, he's not just a God like these Greeks are used to, uh, the Epicureans and Stoics are used to worshiping. Their God is just kind of hands off. You know, he's like, he. he they, they made all this stuff and then they're just out of the way and everything goes on. That's not the true God. He is intimately involved with everything that goes on, even down to your heart. Beat, even down to the blood that 's pumping through your system, even down to the electrical impulses that are going from your brain to whatever you know your fingers or, or whatever, he is intimately involved in upholding all things by the by the might of his power, and so every breath that you 've taken he gives you life, he gives you breath, and it says he gives you all things, everything that you 've taken has been a gift from God, every breath that you 've taken this morning since you woke up and got out of bed has been a gift from God. Every time your heart beat, it has been an active gift from God. It's not I'm not just saying like God says, well, I'm going to let it keep on beating today. I'm talking about God is moving so that your heart continues to beat. God is actively involved in everything that goes on. And so sometimes, this is kind of off subject, but... Sometimes it tickles me a little bit when people. There was a girl that I talked to at the hospital not long ago, and she was, you know, she was mad at God, which is a normal human response. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that. I'd never chastise somebody when they're going through hardship or something for asking those kind of questions. Job did, and so, uh, you know, that that's just we're fallen, and that's what we do. So I didn't go into it with her, but I was thinking in my mind. Man, you're playing a dangerous game being mad at the God that's allowing you to breathe. That's that's giving you every breath that you every breath that you draw in to curse God is a gift that He's given you. You know. It's a a dangerous game to be playing to say, well, you know what? I'm just going to live for myself. I'm going to do what I want to do. When reality is God is the one who's giving you that life that you're choosing to separate from him. God is the one that's giving you that heartbeat that you're choosing to use for something else other than his glory. And so that's a dangerous thing. Paul here says, look, this God here, he created everything. It wasn't like Poseidon did the sea and this guy did the sea. This God created everything and he's Lord over everything. And it says, and He doesn't need you to worship Him. He doesn't need you to serve Him in any way. In fact, He's the one that's given you life. He's given you breath. And then He says in verse 26... Uh, We're probably at the end here. It's getting close to time. It says, uh, verse 26 says, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined, listen, this is important, he hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So if you were an Athenian, you, uh, you know, Athenian named after Athena, the goddess, and then you have other cities had their own little gods That were the patron gods of that city. Uh, Paul's saying, You don't have your own little God. He says, God is God of all, God created all men. He created the Athenians. He created the Colossians. He created, you know, all people everywhere. God created all mankind, all nations from one blood. There's only one race. There's not bunches of races, only one race, the human race. God created them all from one blood. And it says, he determined, look what it says. He determined the times in which they would live. And he determined the place in which they would live. Now, that's kind of shocking shocking, isn't it? That you're alive right now in 2016 because God determined when you would live. God determined when you would be born. You could have been born in 1840. You could have been born in 1520. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I like my PlayStation. Yeah. Oh my you could have been. I like indoor plumbing. You know what I mean? Go, go figure. You, you could have been born. He says he created all nations from one blood. And it says for to dwell on the face of earth. And he determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Not only did he determine when, but he determined where that you would live. Now, if you're an Athenian, you're probably thinking, well, we're from Athens. We got it going on. We're wisdom. You know, we've been around for a thousand years. This is where culture started. Look at these big buildings we got. To. And he said, no, God determined when you would live. God determined where you would live. Have you all ever thanked God that you weren't born in Madagascar or or Saudi Arabia or something like that? You ladies all be thanking God you wasn't born in Saudi Arabia. It's a grace of God that we are who we are. Hey, I I thank God I wasn't born in Rhode Island (laughs) or Maine or somewhere like that. I'm glad I'm glad to live in the Bible belt. But what I'm saying is all that's a grace of God. All that's a grace of God. He determined he's God of all men. Everywhere He created all nations. He created all men. He determined the times that they would live. He determined the place that they would live. He said the bounds of their habitation. And this is why, and this is probably where we're in, verse 27. This is why he was created, why you were created, why all men were created. He says that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. He says the reason why you were created, now think about this, you and I got this, we, we know it, we're sitting in church, it's all good. Think of if you were an Athenian philosopher who'd never heard anything like this, all you knew was Zeus and Poseidon and all that, that's all you knew, and all you knew was the philosophy of the day, and here comes this guy, and he's telling you that the reason the one true God created you was so that you could seek for Him as though you were flopping around in the dark trying to find Him, when reality is that he's not far from any of you. It says, the next verse is the one that we quote here all the time. It says, for in him we live, and we move, and we have our being as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead, the divine one, is what the word means, is like unto gold, or silver, or stone, graven by art and man's device. What that means is, you cannot think, if we're, you're own people. Paul is showing himself, look, I'm not some country bumpkin that doesn't know all. I'm not just some guy from backwater Jerusalem who don't know anything. I know I've been educated in Greek thought. I've been educated in the philosophies. He was an educated man. I know about your Greek poets. He says, your own poets said that we're God's offspring. If that's true, you got to stop thinking that your God is housed in this little statue that you built. I mean, can you imagine, imagine the thought process that goes on in somebody's head for them to say, you know what, I'm going to get up today and I'm going to take my hammer and chisel and I'm going to take this rock and I'm going to chisel out the image of some thing and then that's going to be God and I'm going to bow down and worship what I made with my own hand. He said, God doesn't dwell in images like that. You gotta stop thinking that way. The one true God is close to all of you. He says, in Him we live and we move and we have our being. You cannot exist outside of God. You cannot exist. If God were to remove His hand from you, you would fall dead, you would fall dead like a sack of potatoes. He says, it's God that is actively involved in the grace of giving you life. You would bust on the ground like a garbage bag full of pea soup. You know, I bet the first thing that went through their minds was, well, show him to me. Because everything, every other guy had a face. Yeah. And it was all a face that they created. Right. That they made with their hands. I bet they were expecting Paul to say, well, you know, here he is. (laughs) You know. Yeah. But Paul is pretty much here saying you can't put God in a box. Yeah, you can't worship he, He's not held in a temple. He's not. Uh, he's close to every one of you. He's transcendent. Is that he's not held in an image or anything? But he's also near you. He says because in him you live and you move. He's close to all of you. Is what he's saying. He said you were created. Man was created to seek God and worship God, and man will worship, man is going to worship something. All men, even the man who says, I'm a rabid atheist, he's worshiping something. You're created to worship, you will worship something. Do you witness to people like street witnessing when you take the kids and stuff? Does this come to mind when you're, when you're talking to somebody about how he explained it to them? You know? Sometimes, sometimes... Fortunately, here, most most of the time, people have at least some kind of background. Most people have no clue the reality of who Jesus is and what he did for them. But they have some kind of semblance of, you know, grandmama took me to church when I was whatever. You know, if you were to go... You know, there's some places in the Northwest that people, or Northeast as well, that have never heard anything about Jesus at all. So when you talk about, people talk about going to China and all that, I mean, that's great that we go to all nations. But there's people in this nation that's never heard. And so when you run into somebody that don't know anything about anything... This is where you you need to start. You need to start with God, who God is. And he's the creator. And if he is your creator and he is your sustainer of life, you owe him. And you owe him perfection. And if you can't give him perfection, which you can't, you need somebody who can. And only one person has ever offered that for you, and that's Jesus. And so you start it, you, you do it that way. I got to stop here. It's time to go. We'll finish up this chapter next time. Y'all read the rest of the chapter and come. uh, Not because I want you to read it. I don't want to just sit up here and lecture you and watch all your eyes glaze over. I want y'all to interact and we can spend as much time as we need to in a chapter. I don't have to zip through all this stuff. Okay. So read the rest of this chapter and then read it again and then read it again.